0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com.
2: Today's program has been brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. For more information, visit www.rt11.com.
1: My name is Hannah Forden. I'm the membership coordinator at Heritage Radio Network, but even before I joined the team, I loved listening to HRN during my subway commute. It made the time go quickly and left me feeling inspired for the day ahead. HRN listeners tune in from all over the world. But there are a few traits that we all have in common, no matter where we listen from a curious palate, the fierceness to make a difference, and a hunger for lifelong learning about the culinary world. As you know, Heritage Radio Network is a listener supported nonprofit. To deliver the most ambitious, entertaining, and of the moment stories in 2018, we need your help. We need to raise $150,000 by December 31st to accomplish these goals and to keep your favorite shows on the air. Together, we can make this HRN's most exciting, impactful, and delicious year yet. Become a member by donating today. Join us at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate, and you'll immediately start enjoying benefits such as VIP invitations to HRN events, where you will mix and mingle with your favorite hosts. Memberships also make a perfect holiday gift for all the foodies in your life. This year, why not give the gift of food radio? You'll hear your generosity in action for the year to come. Help keep our lights on and our mics hot by pledging your support today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for listening.
3: Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and we are coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, December 13th, 2017. This is the 163rd episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is an outstanding New York City restaurateur who is also known as a PR maven, and I will introduce her fully in a moment. First, as I do in every show, I will start out with my PR tip. Later, we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is on reinvention. It is never too late to make a career or lifestyle change and try something different. If you have a dream and a passion to pursue something new, you can reinvent yourself with hard work and determination. Forget the naysayers and go after what you want. If you have that fire in your belly, take the risk and trust your gut. Know that you can reinvent yourself at any time and place with the right mindset. That's my tip today. Now, I'm really thrilled to have my guest in the studio with me. It is Georgette Farkas. She is the owner and general manager of Rotisserie Georgette, a restaurant inspired by the time-honored traditions of rotisserie cooking. As a native New Yorker who's enjoyed an international career, Georgette has over 20 years of experience in the hospitality industry, beginning in the kitchens of some of the world's greatest chefs, including Roger Verge, Alain Ducasse, and with Danielle Ballou at New York's Hotel Plaza Athene, if I'm saying that right. And she later worked with Danielle Ballou as his public relations and marketing director for a 17-year tenure. She opened Rotisserie Georgette in 2013 and has received numerous awards, including Restaurant Tour of the Year in 2015 from the Manhattan Chamber of Commerce. So welcome to your chat,
4: Shari. Thank you so very much for having me. It's it's great to get out to Brooklyn, and it's always inspiring to get outside the four walls of your own restaurant to be inspired by other people's ideas and creativity.
3: Yes, I think I agree, and thank you for coming out to to Brooklyn and and coming on my show. I'm I'm really thrilled to have you. I mean, I I feel I've I met you many years ago when you're you're with uh, Danielle Ballou and as working as his PR, and now you have Rotisserie Georgette, and um, I can't wait to hear more details about everything, but I always like to start with my guests with how they got into the industry. So, Maybe a lot of people don't know your background. Right. and no, I think and they don't. I yeah. think they, uh,
4: you know, I got to know so many of the people I know in our field in the decades I worked for Danielle Bourou. But I actually started working as a cook when I was a teenager. And I knew very early on, um, other than wanting to be a ballerina, the only other thing I wanted to do <laughs> was be in the restaurant business. I thought restaurants were magical places, almost like theater, where you create a universe and you make people happy. You, you know, you nourish them, you nurture them, you serve them... Uh, Great food in a beautiful setting that's comfortable, so it's it's something I had uh, I started doing my first kitchen job at the age of now, I don't even remember if it was 14 or 15. I worked in a series of little tiny French restaurants, most of which are, you know, summer jobs, but they weren't just summer jobs. It was a summer job with a very particular purpose on my path to, you know, making my way in the restaurant business. A little tiny French restaurant on 49th Street that's not there anymore, um, you know, uh, Garde Manger, where they always mm-hmm. put girls in Garde Manger or pastry back then. Um, I worked in a tiny restaurant up in Chester, Connecticut, restaurant du village, again, a summer summer job uh, where... The next summer job was a little place in the Hamptons at another French bistro that doesn't exist anymore. Um, So I was really making my way. I was determined that I would someday create restaurants, open restaurants. Uh, When I was in college, I actually took a year off. Uh, I went one summer to do another apprenticeship, uh, and that was uh, for Roger Verger. So I was just a lowly stagiaire, an apprentice. I don't know if I can even merit saying that I worked for him, but being in his kitchen um, in those days was certainly an exceptional thing. But It was such a touchstone for me because I was going back to New York. I was in college and I was going to take that year off between – I was studying European history at Harvard and I decided I was going to take a year off to really work full time in a kitchen, not just as a three-month summer job, and see if I would pursue my real dream of going on to – hotel school in Switzerland after college, and I thought taking that year off to really immerse myself would be would tell me if it was the right direction for me. So I asked Monsieur Verger, when I go home to New York, I want to work for whoever you tell me is the best French chef in New York, and he said, you go see Daniel Bourdieu, and you tell him I sent you. And that's what I did. And in those days, Daniel was, uh, he didn't have his own restaurants yet. He was the chef uh, of the beautiful, the Plaza Athenay Hotel, used to have an exquisite restaurant called La Régence. It doesn't, it's not there anymore. Um, and, you know, that was Danielle's kitchen. So you could just, you know, he wasn't busy running an empire of restaurants. You could just sort of walk in the kitchen and say, you know, bonjour chef. Roger Verger said I should introduce myself. So here I am. And uh, he's such an outside the box kind of a person, even though he's very traditional in some ways, he gave me a try. And I in, will in always... In the kitchen? In the kitchen, okay. yes. I will always be grateful. You know, I wasn't... My experience wasn't anywhere near the caliber of the cooks in his kitchen. But I guess he somehow must have respected that I had, you know, picked myself up and gone off to the south of France to apprentice with Vierge A that had, you know, that showed him that I was serious, that I wanted to learn from the best. Um, I worked in the pastry kitchen for him that year. And uh, we still joke about the class of, it was 1985. Uh, There are still people working in his company who started with him then in 1985, and we're still all close, great friends. Uh, But to make a long story short, I had an exceptional year working there with him. And then uh, I went back and finished my European history degree at Harvard, and I went off to hotel school in Switzerland for four years, which was my plan. You know, this was, I'm... I'm a, you know, i was yeah, sort of a yeah. one one, trick, one track, one trick, you know, I've always had a, a plan. Uh, so I went off to hotel school and then I, I stayed and lived in Europe for many years after that, working in hotels and restaurants and mostly in France. Uh, and when I came home to New York, I, you know, when it was time to sort of get a little bit more serious and come home to New York uh Danielle called me one, you know, we always stayed in touch because he's that kind of person. He really just sort of creates this family of uh, of colleagues around him whom he always stays in touch with. He's just a great connector and mm-hmm. of people. And he called me one Sunday morning and he said, oh, I have a job, you know, I just have a lot of projects, I need some help. And he never really said what the job was. And we still joke to this day, uh, we're not sure, I'm not sure, that he didn't say anything about public relations. And I don't know if it was because he knew if he said that, I would have said, no, that's not for me. I don't know anything about public relations. I can work in the front of the house, the back of the house, kitchen service, because at that point, I had done all of those things through hotel school. Uh, or so either he just, you know, knew that he shouldn't say public relations, because I wouldn't have taken the job. Or he didn't know it was called that, which is possible, because right. he just had a very natural instinct for communicating. Uh, so I went to work for him. And he had just one restaurant at that point And in the beginning, it was just sort of being uh, doing a little bit of everything, but after, I would say, a little, uh, maybe less than a year, it really was doing public relations, and I never really thought that it had a, a name or a title. You know? yeah. I really just thought of what I was doing as, and I still do today, as an extension of hospitality. It was just extending our hospitality beyond our doors to members of the media and bringing them in to experience hospitality. And I think that... Danielle may have chosen me to be in that position because I had been a cook and I had worked in service and it felt very organic and I, you know, was well-versed in French cuisine. and I was bilingual by sort of by accident because I had grown up partly in France, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think it mattered to him that it wasn't a PR person, but yeah. somebody who had experience in cuisine and service and that that was... What made sense to him. So I feel like we sort of learned public relations together. We just sort of did things that were logical to us. And I still feel like I don't really know anything about public relations. I just know about extending hospitality and I know how to read and write and I guess that helped. Yeah, but... Oh
3: wow! You said so much. First of all, thank you for correcting my pronunciation of all the chefs and restaurants. Oh I no, it wrong. doesn't matter. Because, no, I, I'm like I'm like I shouldn't have said it. I should have just waited for you. <laughs> um, but you know, when I started doing PR, I learned PR on the job back this back in two thousand two thousand one when I started, mm-hmm. and I didn't. I think it's one of those fields that a lot of people don't really know what it is or, or how to be a publicist. Mm-hmm. So I I get that doing it and and your definition is is fabulous. So. You, you not only joined in and, and took this role with Danielle. You stayed for seventeen years, right? And it's, you how saw. Do you,
4: you know how yeah. do you leave that job? Well, up, like, well,
3: you know? eventually, we'll get to that because you did. <laughs> uh-huh. But over the seventeen years, let's talk a little bit about. I mean, he grew. He grew an empire. Right. There
4: were seventeen restaurants. Actually, was it wait fourteen or seventeen? By the time I, I think uh, yeah, it said I said fourteen and something. Right, like so. right. By the time I left, exactly, and I think now there are probably seventeen or eighteen or more.
3: Yeah. So, so how did, I mean, uh, I mean, how did your role change? And then you, you, you had other people as part of
4: your PR team right. and and I mean what was that experience like well that know? was um, you know my my department if you would call it that was always tiny you know eventually there were maybe there were three or four people and I think that was I was such someone who was so used to just sort of doing everything myself that that was always a learning challenge for me learning to delegate thank God I learned a little bit otherwise I could never run a restaurant now uh, because I had such a tiny little department it was just sort of a glue connecting you know lots right, of other people right. within the organization um, so I did you know you do have to learn to delegate and we were just, you know, we started as such a tiny company that we did so many things in house. And I think it was a challenge for me to learn how uh, the value of outsourcing certain things, whether it was graphic design or, uh, you know, other mm-hmm. marketing projects. Uh, one of the things I learned, I learned so much from the PR firms that we did work from because whenever we opened a restaurant in another city outside of New York, we we realized how essential it was to work with a local PR firm because only they could have the essential local contacts Um, and also every every city has a culture a dining culture of its own and you don't need only to know the media contacts you need to have a you need to really embrace and learn a, a picture of the dining culture of that city before you even think of opening a restaurant there never mind promoting your own restaurant there and that's something that Daniel is always is so smart about he would really want to learn everything about the dining culture of any given city. Um, As part of opening his restaurant there and really learn that dining culture and and meet the people and um, really just endear himself in the most natural way by trying to earn the respect of the existing dining culture there. Because just because you're a hugely successful French chef coming from New York, those chefs who already have restaurants in that new city, that other city They've been there for a long time. They've been successful there. They've earned their place there, just as you must now go and earn your place next to them. Right. What's what, what's something about Danielle most people don't know? Oh gosh, I guess everyone knows that he has just unstoppable energy. That he has yes. overwhelming creativity and generosity. He's the most generous human being I know. Perhaps other than my mother. She's probably the most generous human being I know. Um, he hates bananas. There you go. <laughs> Fantastic.
3: He hates did, bananas. Did not know that. Many pastry chefs learn that the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's 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 great. Okay, so you decided after 17 years to leave and right. start your own restaurant. Right. Well, when I went restaurant. off to hotel school so,
4: a million years ago, it had always been my plan to open okay. restaurants, to create restaurants. But I knew I wouldn't do it without first learning, you know, uh, working in the kitchen, becoming a cook. I was never a chef. I'd been a cook for, you know, a decent amount of time. Uh, but that had always been my plan. But when you work for someone like Daniel Bourou or a company like his company, because it's not just him, there's mm-hmm. a whole, uh, there, there are many strata of incredibly talented people in his company. So it's hard to leave because you're surrounded by these incredibly smart people who are Really, actually, great fun to work with who are some of the best at what they do. And you have the security of a job. You're working with the best people. You're having a great time. It's challenging and inspiring and new. You know, Danielle has a new project every minute to try to challenge (laughs) you with. There's nothing, there's no resting on any laurels, you know, with Danielle. There's always, how can we do? I think that's one of the best lessons learned from him. How can we make everything better all the time? You know, so there's no, you know, there's no sitting still. Um, But uh, so leaving that very inspiring environment environment, and also just leaving the security of a job, mm-hmm. um, that was very hard. But I realized that if I, uh, if I didn't try to prove myself as an entrepreneur and try to bring to life the picture of this restaurant that I had been building in my mind for obviously a very long time, uh, I, it took a lot of courage for me to go because I'm, uh, I'm not a courageous person uh, and I like sort of security and stability. Uh, and going into business and risking all you have to go into business, obviously. <laughs> you are a courageous person, and you did you did take that risk, and it's
3: been so. So let's talk a little bit. So this 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 concept of. Rotisserie georgette is something you you didn't think of overnight. right? No, of yeah, course. I mean, right.
4: Like everything you do, nothing is it starts from one moment to the next. You don't wake up one day and say, I'm going to be a you know, I, Oh, maybe it, somebody it, does. It, maybe. <laughs> I haven't helped them. But as I said, my first job in the kitchen was at age 14 or 15. So obviously every experience I've had over those decades has in some way Contributed whether my life with my family, the chefs I've worked with, the places I've lived. Uh, I spent my entire career working in the most upscale, perhaps complex restaurants. You know, as a student working in Europe, I worked in the uh, in the in the Hotel de Crillon, in the Hotel de Paris, in Monaco. And I mean, I always chose the five star palaces. There was, you know, um, not surprised. But <laughs> that was just what seemed the natural fit for me. But. So when it came time to open my own place, I felt I had to take sort of the quality standards and criteria that I had been imbued with and worked with over those decades, but sort of re... uh Presenting them in a, in a much simpler everyday way. I wanted this to be a restaurant you could come to several times a week. This was not for a special occasion. This would be food that you could have any day of the week. Uh, so food of the the best caliber, the best quality of ingredients. Things I'd be incredibly proud to serve. Sometimes luxury ingredients, but always very simply presented. No must, no fuss. So uh, there were some of the early influences. My family uh, lived in the south of France when I was a child. We only spent the summers there, but from the age of zero up into my 20s at some point, that was always our, uh, you know, a family home for us. So there are places that we used to go to where uh, I remember some specific restaurants. There was no menu. You would just sit down and you would choose. They had a big fireplace where they cooked the the meat. And when you sat down, they would ask you, do you want a purée roti, a gigot or a coude de bœuf? Do you want a roast chicken? leg of lamb or a cote de boeuf, you know, a big, thick steak on the bone. And to start with, they would just bring you crudite, fresh vegetables and terrines and pâtés, and then whatever meat you had chosen, and or a whole fish, for that matter. Uh, and they, you know, brought you the salads of the day. And for dessert, there was always just one fruit tart or some fresh berries. There was no menu. And there were just those few simple, simply mm-hmm. roasted things. Uh, so that's really what I do, only it's in New York City. Uh, so... Of course, I have to give people a menu and some some choice. but I think with our cooking, you know people can already sort of close their eyes and see and taste and feel what they're going to have for dinner. They can they can just their mouth can water thinking about that, whether it's a whole roasted brenzino or a, a leg of lamb or a, a roast duck or a roast chicken or a roast guinea hen. It's the kind of thing that all of your senses can start to dream about mm-hmm. before you even come in the door. You sort of know what you're going to have.
3: Yes, and you're making me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> That's
4: the whole idea. Yeah, you're you You doing- know why you're coming to the rotisserie. Right, right, and I am due to
3: come back. It's fabulous. Um, we're going to take a little break and come back and talk more about, about the restaurant, what it was like opening, and all that jazz. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network.
2: The following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit TabardInn.com.
3: And we're back. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Georgette Farkas. She's the founder and general manager at Rotisserie Georgette in New York City, which is on the Upper East Side, the
4: Lower Upper East Side, I guess you would say, right? <laughs> yes, I'm definitely an Upper East Side, born and bred sort of girl. But yes, we're at this interesting spot where an intersection on 60th between Madison and Fifth. So I feel that we're we're sort of where Midtown ends and where the Upper East Side begins. So people come from work or people come from home. We're really at this great plektornal, you know, intersection of of the city.
3: Yeah, no, I'm on 60th on the West Side, so I, I will we'll, s- we'll send a car for you, Shay. <laughs> Thank you. I'll just zoom right over. Um, so so what was
4: the process like of opening your own place? And oh, goodness. At first it just finding the courage to say I'm going to do it. Even actually it took me months to even uh and find the courage to to tell Daniel I was going to do this. And of course he's such a prince of a and such a gentleman. The first thing he said is well if you've made this decision how can I help you. That's, you know, that's pure Daniel Boudou. But um I mean, of course, you start with formulating, you know, what your restaurant is going to be. I hate the word concept, but yes, there's, you know, the rotisserie is it. I had a very clearly defined idea of what my restaurant was going to be. And I could see it in my mind. I could see the look of it. I could see the feel of it. The menu was in my mind. Of course, I mean, the menu changes all every season, but you know, the 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 core of the menu was there. Uh, so the next steps, uh, money. And location. <laughs> and then construction. I mean, those are the great yeah. big pieces. I'm sure I'm leaving out some key. Well, but, those are the um, big ones, I But guess. team, team, mm-hmm. team, team. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the first things I did was I reached out to, I think I know my strengths and I know my weaknesses. Uh, I studied accounting, you know, hospitality accounting in hotel school. And it was helpful to me, but it's not my strength. Uh, I reached out to a woman called Katina uh, Pappas, now uh, Katina Germanis, now married, uh, she is a really smart, you know, I was a Harvard undergrad. She was a Harvard Business School grad, which is much more, <laughs> much, much more valuable. I don't know. It's all uh, impressive to <laughs> <right>? me. <laughs> but she, um, I really needed someone with her expertise. We had worked together working for Danielle. So I also knew how incredibly smart and also just really, really practical. She grew up in a restaurant family. I reached out to her and asked if she would join me in building and creating and opening this restaurant because she had, uh, she had tremendous strengths in the areas where I was very weak um, uh, financial projection so in creating the business plan together you know Katina built in the numbers you know I sort of had to put a framework around them but uh, it was one of those just really excellent partnerships where we have completely complementary skill sets I mean she could do anything I could do I just can't do the things she could do Right. But uh, so we started uh, you know I had the makings of my business plan but she helped me to build the numbers into them and that's essential you can't you know you, mm-hmm. you can't take that next step Um then we started reaching out to potential investors. Um, I actually really enjoyed the process of uh, showing my restaurant, you know, on paper, but also just, you know, to potential investors. I loved doing that. I, th- I think I didn't know enough to be scared. There was one who made me cry, but that, um, <laughs> it was actually early on. It was the best training possible because he asked me incredibly hard meat. Like, he was really mean and tough, but that was great. I thank him to this day. I won't say his name, but he prepared me to, right. you know, for the rest of the process um, So uh, raising money, um, one of our early investors who is also a sort of a mentor and a guide, and we we created a little business board. She's on our board, uh, instilled in us the discipline. We weren't going to sign our lease until we had raised a certain percentage, you know, the vast majority of the funding we needed. So we maintained that discipline. Um, Construction, not easy. Again, you know, I know what I don't know, and it's certainly not my expertise. I leaned on a lot of uh, people who I had worked with over the years for that. But it's always, I've, f- there, I hate to say it, but I, I feel that it, maybe it's just my impression, but being a woman dealing with construction companies, I, I felt a little bit of a disadvantage, uh, but maybe that was just my own. Uh, insecurity? I don't know. I
3: don't know. I've, I, I mean, I don't know, but yeah. I don't think so.
4: I think, I think from what I've heard from other women, it, it can, some things can be tough. Right. Well, I have learned a lot more about HVAC, and, but actually, yeah. yes, HVAC is the hardest part of any construction. And, you know, people I know in the restaurant business who have been in the restaurant dis- business for decades, that is always their weak point and always the thing that is the most impossible to deal with both in construction and ongoing operations. So I feel right. like, okay, it's not just me and it's not just because I'm a girl, but, um, yeah. So, uh, raising money, finding location, negotiating a lease, uh, bidding to contractors, building uh, the design part—I loved. Uh, well, you're—you have an eye I, for for design. I, Your but, space is beautiful. But I had—I also had help there. I wanted to design my own restaurant. That was very important to me. But I. Uh, I reached out to a family friend, Alexandra Champalimo, and I asked her if she would be sort of my interior design fairy godmother because I didn't want to make mistakes and I knew that there was a lot of technical expertise that I didn't have. So at every step of the way, we worked in a kind of reverse method. She would allow me to bring my materials, my colors, my little sketches and samples and things to her and she would just sort of look at them and give me guidance and uh, then I could also uh, turn to people in her office to actually make... uh, sketches and, and elevations for me to actually put my ideas on paper in a way that I couldn't possibly do and enabled me to see how things would actually look. So it was very helpful to have some pros to fall back on, even though I had a clear idea of what I wanted to, you know, yeah. what I wanted to do. And she took a lot of my ideas and made them a lot better and maybe steered me away from things that, you know, that uh, I didn't always listen, but I mostly right. listened <laughs> um, Menu, of course, yeah. we started testing, you know, well before we opened. Uh, we actually, one of our purveyors uh, let us install one of our rotisserie ovens temporarily in their uh, warehouse so that we could actually, actually, Danielle even let me use, there's a rotisserie in his kitchen. And early on, we were testing a whole bunch of different birds in the process because the way we would design our kitchen, um, how we were going to dry brine the birds a lot would uh, would affect how we would actually design our kitchen and the walk-in space we needed. So we tested several different methods uh, and different yeah. birds. So. Yeah, that's smart. And what about who's, who's your chef today? And, and our chef is uh, Francisco Blanco. Uh, He is a prince, a gem. I use that word. I don't use that word sparingly, but I've used it so far, twice so far in our, in our, uh, this afternoon. Uh, He came to us, he he was with us uh, from our pre-opening. He came on board as a cook. Uh, He eventually rose to be a, a sous chef and is today our executive chef. Uh, uh, what can I say? Francisco is amazing. Um, he's worked with many French and Italian, you know, chefs whose names you would, you know, recognize here in New York City. And he's really, you know, worked his way up, the hard, yeah. you know, from prep cook on the hard way. Um, he's an absolute gentleman. And why does that matter? That matters when you're when you have a super hard. Saturday night with, you know, for us, a big, big night would be 170 covers, and they're all coming all at once, and the locomotive is speeding down the tracks. You need someone who stays cool, 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 who maintains respect for every member of the team so everyone can get through service decently, who gets the food out with absolute consistent quality yeah, every day, no matter what. That is the most important thing and the hardest thing. That's another Danielle Bouda lesson, but... Uh, uh, so, you know, I I came to this, you know, with my plans for my restaurant with a very clear idea. I have a very clear idea in my head all the time of what I want the food to be, what the dishes are, but we collaborate on them. You know, I collaborate on them with uh, with Francisco. We we're just in the process of bringing on board a new sous chef, and I would love to him to have input. You know, there may be things at the end of the day, you know, <laughs> they'll, they'll filter through uh, whether or not I feel they're a good fit for uh, for our menu, Um our dishes will always have a French accent. There will always be seasonal, uh, you know. In, in there will always be a few touches of luxury. You know, there will there will always be white asparagus in springtime. What can I say? Right. Uh, you know, and 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 truffles in the winter and white truffles in the fall. Uh, so, what about pastry? Pastry. Uh, here, hats off to Jennifer Tafuri, who is, uh, as her name would suggest, Italian American. Uh, we we joke all the time because uh, obviously she's not French. Uh, uh, and she came to us having worked in several really great Italian restaurants, uh, but I knew she had the technique. I mean, the technique that she had, you could translate into, you know, a, a broad range of desserts. So, you know, we have... A, sometimes we have this yin and yang where she wants to take things a little more Italian, and I bring them back to a little more French, but she always she executes them perfectly. And we have... We share a palette where we always want to focus on the flavor and not the sugar. You know, that we should taste the chocolate before we taste the sugar. We should taste the fruit before we taste the sugar. So... Uh, uh, super yeah. traditional, whether it's a souffle or a profiterole or a pot de crème or, um, you know, and then we do really, for example, with New Year's Eve coming up, uh, we we do these beautiful big en bouche that we put sparklers in and parade around the dining room. And one of the things she's be- become, thanks to Jennifer, we've become known for when we do beautiful private events, we set up a, uh, an incredible dessert buffet on our bar with so many tiny little, you know, beautiful little sort of bites of dessert and people just you know, their jaw drops and they just go, ah, and they love the idea that they can try, you know, so many little things as opposed to sitting down to that one plate of dessert that they, uh... Well... Last year
3: we did our Le Ladame's yes, Le that's Le what we Schofier. did. We did
4: one of Jennifer's fabulous dessert uh, yeah, buffet so I, for you. We
3: had our dinner there, and it was it was it was a perfect evening. And we had I was able to experience that with, and I know right. exactly what you are talking right. about. Right. So it is, was the
4: fall season. Yeah, so I am sure we had our tartatin, which is probably the dessert that we mm-hmm. we do it yeah. so classically. The apples have to just they're so well roasted in the caramel that they just melt in your mouth, and the pate brisée just crumbles in your mouth, and the tart has to be. Hot and darkly caramelized, and the crème fraîche has to be cold, and uh, so that would be yeah. one item. For example, that would be on the buffet. We always do several flavors of pot de crème. Uh, we all, uh, anyway, yeah. it goes on and on. Oh, oh, it was
3: fantastic. And
4: yes, yes, you're making me hungry again. <laughs> um,
3: uh, so one question, more question. When we take a break, so what? What advice or tip would you give to someone who's looking to open a restaurant in New York? Like, if there was one thing you could tell them from what you learned, maybe.
4: Oh, goodness, what you learned. Um, Just when you think you have something right, you probably need to go back and study and make it better. And that could be, I mean, of course, from the guest experience perspective, but uh, behind the scenes, uh, managing costs becomes harder and harder and harder. And every time you think you've managed a cost well, you should probably go back a month later and turn it upside down and inside out again and see how you can do it more cost effectively. I know that's not the sexy side of the business, but you won't stay open if you don't get that part right. No, that's
3: important, and and that's a great tip. So thank you. Okay. We're going to take a break, and we're going to come back. We're going to play my speedrun game and talk some industry news. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network.
2: The following program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 Potato Chips dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate. Incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 Potato Chips believes comfort food should be just that. Know where your food comes from. For more information, visit rt11.com.
3: And we're back. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Georgette Farkas. And it's time for my speed round game. So what this is, is I'm going to name a couple things and you just pick your preference. Are you ready? Ready? You're always ready. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. Eat in or eat out? Out.
4: Wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail? Wine, 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 wine. Wine all the way. Bordeaux, red Bordeaux. Oh, specific. like it. Uh, Chateau Ferencégo. Why not?
3: <laughs> <laughs> Have a tasting menu or a la carte? A la carte. Small plates or large plates? In between. <laughs> In between. <laughs> medium plates. Medium, right. medium plates. Okay. Communal table or chef's counter? Chef's counter. Tipping or all inclusive
4: charge? For now, tipping uh, remains to be studied further. Okay. I'll check back in with
3: you. Okay. Speaking of rotisserie chicken, white meat or dark meat? Oh, the whole damn bird. The whole bird. Yes. I like that. How about pitching the press or being in the press? I mean
4: actually working in the media?
3: Well, I meant like being a publicist where you're contacting the media or when you are the person that the media is writing about. (laughs) You know, oh, okay. it's so, being, sorry. Yes, no, like I understand. being a publicist versus um,
4: being the one publicized. Right. I wouldn't, um, I mean, having my restaurant uh, covered in the media, that's, I'm very proud of that to show yeah. what my team is doing, uh, to show, the, you know, the incredible experiences we give people. So, yes, having yes. rotisserie georgette and, and what we're cooking and serving in the press, for sure, yes. Yeah, good answer. I like that. How about cheese plate or dessert? Oh, can I have you can have both. <laughs> um, it's a, it's the a season of Vashham Hamolder and that's something we offer in the restaurant because everything we do is almost everything a whole roast or a whole so we serve a whole cheese, a whole Vesh Hamolder and that just for me is it's just a, a decadent wonderful thing. Fantastic one more, Manhattan or Brooklyn? I'm an Upper East Side Manhattan girl. But <laughs> I figured you were going to say that. <laughs> yes, I'm. I'm afraid. So I would love if someone would, love, would like to give me a Brooklyn tour someday. I'm. I'm game. I'm
3: okay. Game. <laughs> okay. Um, listeners, take note.
4: And that's the game. Thank you very much. I had fun playing. I had a <laughs> great time being here with you, Sherry. Thank you. And I hope you. that you will come see me soon at the rotisserie. Yeah, but but we're not, but we're
3: not done. Oh,
4: great. Okay. Oh, great. I'm ready for more. I'm ready <laughs> okay. For
3: more. Okay. Um, yeah, no, I will absolutely. I'm so due to come back. Um, but uh, I want to talk some industry news with you. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, um, big news this week. Not, oh, yes. Lots not, of news. Not, not the happiest subject. So on Monday, Eater broke a story entitled Mario Batali steps away from restaurant empire following sexual misconduct allegations. And the subtitle was four women accused the chef of inappropriate touching in a pattern of behavior that spans at least two decades, according to dozens of eater interviews. And this was done by Irene, uh, Pla- Plagione's and Kitty Greenwald. And then on Tuesday, yesterday, another story broke in the New York times about how Ken Friedman power restaurateur, is accused of sexual harassment. And this was by Julia Moskin and Kim Kim Severson and just big, big, big upsetting news. Um, I don't know. Some people in the industry are saying they're not surprised by it, but this is.
4: Uh- mm. I'd like to pose a, a, a counterpoint to it. Yes, there are people who have acted badly, and yes, they should be called out. and And the more you, I do believe, the more you have responsibility and influence, the more you have. I'm mean, sorry, the more you have power and influence, the more you also bear responsibility for your actions and have the responsibility to act as a leader and, and someone of you know trust. Um, That said, uh, as I I mentioned earlier, I've started working in restaurants and kitchens specifically, which were certainly male dominated in those days. I started at the age of 15. I'm over 50 now. That's too much information. Um, So (laughs) that's lots of decades. That's over three decades in the business. And I can say that I have never once experienced anything remotely like sexual harassment. And I was working in some pretty good, you know, old school European. Restaurants uh, that were male-dominated and maybe I'm just fortunate that I only worked for people who were incredibly decent and respectful and professional. Uh, I know the other kind exists, but I want to make sure that people know that restaurants can also be uh, environments that are nurturing and We take so many people who come into our businesses at the absolute entry level with, with no skill or little skill and, and build careers and go from dishwashers to managers. I've seen it. Um, so yeah, there are some rotten apples, yeah. but there are also, uh, some great, uh, very decent leaders. I'm, I'm, I'm really
3: glad you said that. And I mean, my background is not as extensive in kitchens as yours, but I went to cooking school in Chicago and I, I worked as garmanger when you said that <laughs> earlier, I was like, yes, that's where, I, where I was. And I, I've worked, I have a lot of experience working in restaurants, um, not so recently, more um, you know, PR for restaurants. But I, I, you know, I don't know if my memory's terrible or what. I don't, I don't think it's that bad. But I don't, I don't have instances that blatantly come out. To I think I worked in, you know, I worked for Charlie Trotter. I worked for a lot of um, people where I felt it was, I, it was. Uh, I don't know. I don't have stories to tell, and so there are stories to tell, and I think it is important that this is now getting out there and being covered, it's um, a lot,
4: it's just a huge, it's, you know, everyone, it's it's the right. big talk of our right. industry. If and it makes people if improve their s- practices, if it increases awareness and it motivates businesses to clean up their act or just to have policies in place, Listen, every restaurant, or I don't know if they do, but, you know, has an employee handbook when you sign on a new employee uh, I don't know if they all do. That's the thing. Like, the stuff is coming uh, up now. Not just that we have it. We have a separate page. And I know a piece of paper is not what is going to fix anything. But I actually, whether it is I or my general manager, we actually stand, you know, we review this with them. And we we stand over them as they read and sign that page. And I say to them, we take this seriously. Um, You know, they read it. They sign it. Now, sometimes people read things and gloss over it. And that's happened, you know. And... uh, then we realize they're not the right person for us. Right, but uh, I, I think if we've we've held all staff meetings uh, when we felt that it was important. And This was you know more than a year ago. It wasn't in this current you know environment, but where we felt it was important just to express to the whole team out loud. Um, you know the foundation. What we what I've always yeah. felt was the an important foundation uh, of our restaurant, which was that it be a place a workplace of decency and respect. You know from Dishwasher to maitre D uh, that everyone should feel, everyone should be able to look forward to coming to work and feel safe and yes. comfortable. Or do we work hard? Are we exhausted sometimes? Do we work a little too hard sometimes? Yes, but uh, if we can do that yeah. with mutual respect,
3: yeah, I agree. I mean, I I mean, with if the New York Times piece that. Which has covered you, Ken Friedman and and Mario's mentioned to that too with spotted pig in their upstairs third floor room and I mean there was a lot of details and it was it's, very, it's upsetting to read um, I, I you know it's very brave or these women that are coming out and talking and telling their stories they people have been afraid to speak out of the gears by the power that restaurateurs have or so i think you know i think uh, we'll see what changes it brings to the industry what mm-hmm. happens i mean i i saw someone uh i think it was kim severson on on facebook posed how people are wondering now whether they should boycott the restaurants like mario's restaurants or, the, or not and uh, you know is that helpful not or is that you're hurting them in the employees you know what's the right thing to do i think a lot of people are kind of talking about this and questioning you know
4: well, I think this big, is an opportunity for restaurants yeah. uh, who haven't yet uh, put in place a policy, not just putting in place a policy is one thing, but communicating it very simply and very clearly and communicating it not just in pa- on paper, but out loud, you know, <laughs> right, get right in there with your team and, and say it out loud. Uh, and if you, you know, there's the see something, say something, I know it's obvious, but uh yeah, uh, if you have the slightest, sus- you know, suspicion that someone's being made uncomfortable, yeah. you know, bring it out in the open, uh, discuss it with the people involved, act on it as you see fit. Uh, yeah, it's this—it's an opportunity. Uh, I, I like to think that everything that goes wrong provides a teachable moment. Uh, I think that happens in our business every day. There's a when we get something wrong, it's an opportunity to improve it, um, and this is, yeah, here's an opportunity to. Fix it and make it better. It won't happen all at once. And we should remember that there are also lots of incredibly decent um, leaders in our business, not just, you know, not just the bad boys. Yes. And there's there, and also the more uh, that you see women in positions of leadership, I'm not saying that, you know, women and girls are going to fix everything. No, of course not. Uh, but there's tons of opportunity for women in our business and, and perhaps the more you see women in positions of management and leadership, they have to be willing to take those on. You know, I think one of the few reasons you don't see more women in management or leadership positions in restaurants, restaurant life is tough. You have to be willing to work every night, every weekend, every holiday. And if you don't, you probably you know the restaurant business may not be for you or uh, so those are those are some tough choices uh very tough choices for women to make but uh i think for those who want to, to embrace that life the jobs are there for them uh you know yeah. apply the more you know i i wish more women would apply to work in my restaurant i have positions open come on in
3: yes yes all all, all well said so well that was that was the big news this week so um I will see if anything else comes or what comes and what it changes will. come. Yeah. <laughs> it will. It yeah. will. Well, okay. We're going to take one more break and come back and I'm going to do my solo dining experience. And then we have the final question. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience. So this week, it's at Tetsu. Here's the rundown. The location, 78 Leonard Street, Tribeca, New York City. The concept, a Japanese grill built around a robata, the center place of traditional Japanese homes. The chef is Masayoshi Takayama, otherwise known as Masa, of three Michelin star Masa, So why did I go? Because this is a new, highly anticipated, more casual concept of masa, and I'm a big fan. My experience. So I arrived from my reservation for one, and in the the reservation system, you could note if you wanted to sit at the chef's counter. And I did put that in, and it was honored. And so I had the seat at the counter. It was right in front of the robotic grills, and uh, the team was really great, guided me through the menu, service was good, and I made friends with my neighbors, who actually ordered some extra pieces of sushi for me as, as we became friends, which was really cool. So, um, I had a good time. So, what did I get? I had the duck tongue pastrami, hamachi skewer, and pork sausage skewer. I had, for sushi, I had a piece of uni toro and charred salmon, and then... My friends had it with a few extra pieces. I had the yellowtail and salmon roe. So my take, I enjoyed everything. The duck tongue was was really fun to snack on. Uh, it had some two hot dipping sauces with it. Sushi was great. And my favorite bite was actually the por- pork sausage. It was really packed with flavor. So the ambiance, well, it's really super cool. It's low lit. It has a long, very long bar of counter seats in front of the robotic grill, which is the focus point. Um, it's ideal for chef watching, and there's lots of tetsu, and that that's the name, and it means wood and iron in Japanese. Um, apparently, Masa is planning to do an omakase in the basement that's going to open next year. So I'd say it's perfect for sharing Japanese bites and drinks with friends or going solo and making friends. Interesting tidbit. I don't know why this is, but it took Masa over five years to get the place open. I think it had to do with construction issues. Another interesting tidbit is from 5 to 6 p.m. daily, he's offering two burgers, a lamb and beef burger um, on pretzel buns. And I, I want to go. You got to go between 5 and 6 to get them. Personal fun fact, I once dined at Massa's Masa in Time Warner Center for a birthday celebration with a friend. It was divine, but it was definitely the most I've ever spent on a meal. It's super expensive. So this meal cost $46, which was which was great, uh, much more affordable, and that's not including tax and gratuity. Would I go back? Yes, I think I'm planning to go back five to six to try that burger, and the website is tetsunyc.com. Do you want to go to Tetsu? Have a burger with me, Georgia.
4: I would love to. <laughs> I love going to restaurants. It's my most favorite thing on earth. But I never have time. Yeah, well, <laughs> Sunday you're, nights. Restaurant's night off. Sunday nights. Yeah. But speaking of Sundays, I brought you a little gift. Uh, we make our own. Uh, we have our house granola at Rotisserie Georgia. We've just recently begun serving Sunday brunch, which oh. is uh, just all on fire right now. Um, and it's something I've always I've done it this at home for years, making my own personal blend of granola. But now that we serve brunch, we can finally serve it in the restaurant. And I have to say, our pastry. Chef Jennifer makes it much better than I did. Uh, Lots of nuts, almonds, pecans, pumpkin seeds, soy nuts, um, oats sweetened just with maple syrup, uh, and a little bit of ground star anise and fennel seed to just give it a little interesting edge. So I brought you, uh, in case you don't make it to brunch anytime soon, I brought you some of uh, G's granola. Thank you so much. I'm
3: I'm so excited to have it at home, and I need to come in for brunch. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sounds fantastic. Thank you. I did not know before that you were doing granola, so good to know.
4: Now I know. I do. That's the great thing about yeah. having your own little business. You do what you want. I love great granola. So we make granola, even though it seems to have nothing to do with the rotisserie, but it's, as I say, it's featured at our at our brunch. Yeah,
3: yeah. No, makes perfect sense. Okay, it's time for the final question. So... After the new year, my next guest is going to be Eric Asimov. He is the wine critic at the New York Times. Yes, indeed. Very,
4: yeah. And might I say, a frequent uh, visitor to Rotisserie Georgette. We love having him. It seems when wine purveyors want to bring a wine writer to try their wine, they find that our place, because our food is very straightforward and simple, there's little distraction. You know, so a simple roast chicken or a simple, you know, roasted Brenzino is a great palette on which to paint their wines. So Eric and I actually just laugh about it, that, you know, he's back because yet another wine maker, uh, you know, has invited him to sort of come and pair... Their wines, and of course, they'd like to do it over a meal because wine should always be with food. That's how it is. So, we have the great pleasure of welcoming him often. So, yes, I could. Can I ask him for a wine pairing? Yes, please ask him whatever you'd like. Wine pairing question for Eric. I can't ask just one. So, Christmas week, we offer um, some special whole roast to order in advance. So, you can have a whole roasted goose or uh, with a port glaze or a whole roasted capon with, uh, of course, roasted with black truffle under the skin. Uh, So, Eric, what would you pair? Uh, or a whole roasted uh, salmon with the tarragon filling and a sauce béarnaise. So those are three of our special whole roasts during Christmas week. What would you pair with each of those beautiful rotisserie uh, items? I love it. I can't wait to hear what he has to say. Christmas Uh, wines. Okay. I will find out. So thank you. Thanks. that is the show thank you very much Harry. I'm delighted to come out and be with you here in Brooklyn and hope I get the chance to welcome you back uh, when you come to the rotisserie
3: oh well, thank you you you're so gracious you're and you're amazing you uh, your whole career and I'm I'm really I, I'm I'm just I'm in awe that you, of everything you've done and yeah, yeah really redo- in a restaurant you've got to redo it every
4: day <laughs> that's the fun
3: yeah no it's hard and it's and it's it's a tough industry but it's also it's fabulous and and just and listening to you describe dishes and your menu I mean it's obviously you you're so passionate about it and you you're knowledgeable and you you sell it like you're really you know I'm like everything just made me want to go in more than even before we're expecting you okay okay I'm just across the park so um well I'll do a little roundup or summary. Uh, my guest today has been Georgette Farkas. She is the founder and the general manager at Rotisserie Georgette. Their website's rotisserieg.com, and you can find them on social media, Instagram, Rotisserie Georgette, and Twitter, Georgette Farkas and RotisserieG. G. You can find me on social media. I'm at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My website is BayerPublicRelations.com and SherryBayer.com. And all of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. And we are on iTunes and Stitcher. So thanks again to Georgette. Thanks to my engineer, Vitor. And thanks to everyone at Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. I'll be back next year with more live shows. So, my next show is going to be Wednesday, January 17th, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and my guest will be Eric Asimov. Till then, have a wonderful, wonderful holiday season. Happy, happy new year, and thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. <laughs>